This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast with Michael Ware. And uh, we're, we're back. Last week, we talked about the Democratic Convention. So surprise, we're going to talk about the Republican Convention today uh, for this episode. Very grateful to have a John Ward, who is the first returning guest uh, for the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh, we had John uh, on around the uh, New Hampshire primary in February, and now he's back. And uh, John did a write-up, did some reporting on Biden's speech in Pittsburgh on Monday, and we're going to get to that. But in order for you to understand Biden's speech on Monday in Pittsburgh, you have to understand the Republican convention. So kind of like last week, this is going to be a bit of a fire hose. I'm even, even with that said, I'm not going to be able to cover everything The hope is just to draw out some main themes, give you a sense of what the Trump campaign and Republicans were trying to accomplish with their uh, convention. And uh, that will set us up for uh, this this stretch of of uh, this really this final stretch of the campaign. I mean, you know, I'll probably use the phrase final stretch a couple more times, like, you know, uh, once the debates start after after they end. Uh, but for now, I feel pretty good saying this is the final stretch of the campaign. We're, we're about nine weeks out. All right, let's let's get to the Republican convention. Look, they had three, in my view, sort of three goals. What, what they well, first, let me say. Adam Nagurney for the New York Times wrote an article that came out before the convention previewing what actually kind of turned out to be true about the Republican convention, uh, which was that Trump advisors were looking at uh, Richard Nixon's 1968 race, um, where, of course, the Southern strategy played a role. Also, Nixon's focus on law and order as a model for how they could uh, when that that article was just well reported and prescient, and so I'd, I'd recommend it. Adam Nagurney uh, for the New York Times. Uh, look, I've, I view the Republicans as uh, trying to do three things with their convention across the four days. One was to drive a law and order message, suggesting that tying Democrats to the violence and looting that we were seeing around the peaceful protests, the largely peaceful protests um, happening in cities from uh, Minneapolis to Seattle and, of course, um, Portland, uh, but really across the across the country. And so that, that was that was one of their missions. They wanted to tie Democrats, Joe Biden specifically, to that. Second, they I think as a pairing. A, to advance some uh, direct campaign goals of, of uh, as we've talked about on the show before, they want to see if they could bite into Democrats' advantage with particularly 
black men and Hispanic men. And so throughout the convention, starting on day one, and I honestly, you know, I was watching and thinking, okay, like this is an out of the gate, you know, day one showing, you know, Nikki Haley spoke, uh, Senator Tim Scott spoke. And I thought, okay, I, you know, I see what they're doing here. And I kind of, frankly, like expected it to be over. Um, like I expected it to be a theme of just day one. They had voices of people of color, predominantly black men, but also others throughout the convention. Some of whom, like Tim Scott, made sort of uh, primarily sort of policy centric political arguments. But also a, a, a theme that they drove was this idea that people of color who support Trump are free thinkers. That was a phrase that was used quite often, free thinkers. And uh, the the terminology of getting off mental plantation that the Democrats have folks on was used by by several speakers. That kind of language was was mostly in sort of the early hour of the convention, not in prime time, but that sentiment was sort of sort of throughout. A lot of this was dismissed entirely as trying to sort of comfort suburban Republican women to so that they wouldn't think that sort of voting for Trump made them racist. And I, I think there's some of that, like comforting, you know, potential swing white Republicans with a narrative and with some resources so that they could push back within their communities when people are telling them, you know, how could you vote for Trump? You know, he he's xenophobic, he's racist, dun, dun, dun. The convention wanted to arm folks with really powerful stories. There were several really powerful stories, of, uh, particularly around criminal justice reform, but some other examples as well. Herschel Walker, I think, gave one of the best features of the first night. Uh, Herschel is a was a really excellent football uh, uh, football player, and he said that he has known Trump for, I think he said, 37 years and gave a personal testimony uh, of uh, Trump being a, a, a decent guy. By the way, Herschel Walker also was someone who said, you know, when people say Trump is a, is a racist, he said that hurts my soul. I know Donald Trump. He's not a racist. So that was the second idea. And I think the pairing of the two was really intentional. And I think something that they they thought would protect them somewhat, sort of drive a law and order message, but then have this message really an identity politics message from people of color during the convention. You know, the thing I'll say here is, and I'm going to do this several times in this episode, which is like give voice, I think, to like what the Republican pushback is, which would be like, why is it when when Republicans have people of color speaking on the platform, that it's, it's a political tactic, but when Democrats do it, it's not. I mean, I mean, what? I think that line has some merit. The Democratic sort of pushback on that would be, well, it doesn't match leadership. It doesn't match who's voting for the party in terms of, you know, the representation in the platform line lineup doesn't necessarily reflect how things work out in sort of reality. Like when, when people go to the polls and when you're looking at Repu- Republican members of the House, for instance, but you know, I, I think that's a that's a debate, and that's that's fair. I mean, you, you judge for yourself if you think 
there was colorblind sort of uh, scheduling for the for the convention. I think you could go there. All I'm saying is I think they were cognizant of what the media would say about their strong law and order sort of anti raising fears about violence in cities. Um, they were aware of what media would say about that. And so they uh, were aware of sort of trying to offer at least a counterbalance by making sure their platform had speakers that could, at least for some portion of sort of Republican voters, disarm those those critiques. The third message was that, and this is interesting, very few speakers spoke about Biden himself as a radical. Uh, the, the line throughout the convention was Biden and his radical Democratic allies, which is something of a concession. <laughs> In other words, you know, they seem to have conceded on the idea that they're going to convince people that Joe Biden is some sort of uh, closet socialist, some kind of radical political figure. And so the really like the best they could do is if you're going to take that approach of trying to radicalize your opponent, uh, make them out to be sort of have some extremist implications is not to say, you know, they they weren't too, not too many were willing to say Biden is an extremist. What they were willing to say or what they tried to push was that he's sort of a, a Trojan horse for the radicals, that he is someone who either intentionally or not is making way for the radicals. So they use his comment that he's a transition president to say, you know, what is he transitioning to? AOC, of course. And so that that was a main, main message. They wanted to frame uh, Biden as someone, another term they used quite a bit was a puppet. He's a puppet of the radical left. He doesn't have the vitality to stand up to the left. Well, you know, part of what I'd say to that is we went through an entire Democratic primary where that's basically exactly what he did. He took down all the candidates further to his left. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, you know, he 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 never budged on Medicare for all, for instance. I mean, he never. And so, like, I don't think I don't think the Trump line is going to sell there. Similar to the law and order line. You know, it's it's hard to say, you know, this guy is is weak when you're also arguing that, oh, he passed the the crime bill that uh, that was that was bad because it gave too much funding to the police and had led to over policing. It's very hard to advance both those arguments at the same time, which which they did at the convention. And so those are the three themes that we saw the Republicans push law and order, a approach to non-white voters and sort of a a critique of Biden's relationship with non-white voters. And then third is this attempt to say Biden's going to roll over for and not stand up to the radical left. Let me do just a quick, I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, I'm going to try and condense this down. Because we did with the Democrats, I want to do it here, which is a bit of an overview of each of the nights. Which is, uh, so, so day one, again, you know, we saw Senator Scott, we saw Nikki Haley, and we saw, I believe Donald Trump Jr. was on the first night. Really the, you know, Senator Scott was a bit of a throwback in the sense that he actually seemed concerned. His speech was fairly conventional. He interestingly didn't, 
did not seem too eager to name Trump. He seemed he seemed like he didn't want to give an unabashed endorsement of Trump. So he kind of, uh, you know, he slammed Biden on policy. He did claim that Biden-Harris had their designs on a socialist utopia, which was the one line where I thought, come on, uh, Senator Scott. He also did this thing. I, I did an event with Senator Scott. He said, you, and he, quote, we live in a world that only wants you to believe in the bad news racially, economically, and culturally polarizing news. That is that is something he, he he does. And I've seen him in rooms of Republicans who are like concerned about polarization and the toxicity of our politics. I've seen him go into rooms and be like, hey, it's not that bad. We we all we actually do kind of get along and you know I just want to buy into the hype and I just think that's a you know an interesting approach, and the fact that he brought that to the national stage was interesting. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. spoke on the first night, and it was uh, you know Fox News ready sort of red meat. Um, it was oddly impersonal. You know, Herschel Walker probably gave a more personal testimony of Donald Trump than Donald Trump Jr. gave Donald Trump, so that was interesting. Really, really on day one, which I which I thought was a good day for the Republicans. Where they, where they really did well was on uh, some of the speakers earlier in the program, uh, and in some of the, some of the stories and videos that they did. Uh, I will note Kimberly Guilfoyle spoke, and, uh, I could not possibly summarize that for you, but if somehow you did not see that speech and you want to be frightened slash entertained slash Terrified. I know I said frightened, but but terrified. This speech will make you frightened and terrified. Uh, and so <laughs> go to search Kimberly Guilfoyle Republican Convention, and and your life will be changed. Uh, I should note Cardinal Dolan gave the invocation on day one, and it was a it was a pretty uh, standard prayer. It, it it wasn't a it wasn't an endorsement of Trump, um, much like he gave in 2012. That's day one. Day two, I thought, was the, the worst day for the Republicans, though better on faith in, in terms of political effectiveness, from my point of view, and, and just sort of intentionality. Uh, day one on faith was very broad strokes. I did note that they had some really odd power of positive thinking, sort of postmodern sort of language, and not just on day one, but really throughout. I mean... There was talk of manifesting yourself. Uh, there was like kind of like if you think it, you can do it stuff. It, it it was it was it was weird. Like it would not have sounded out of context. Those lines from like I don't know, like an Eckhart Tolle kind of. I mean, it. it I was I was really interested in some of the some of the sort of. Uh, philosophy <laughs> lines that were philosophical lines that were spouted at the convention um, on day day two they opened up with a prayer from a pretty Pentecostal charismatic leaning uh, Hispanic evangelical uh, a pastor a female Norma Urabazzo and it was a much better start to the night than day one and then it kind of went downhill from there in my view day one started with like Charlie Kirk and some so speakers that just didn't, I don't think, presented the best face, the, the, the best sort of presentation uh, to uh, the country. On day two, 
The first official speaker was Myron Lizer, who's an evangelical pastor, vice president of the Navajo Nation. Then a, a, a video featuring Jim Ponder, who was a, a, a felon who turned his life around. Really powerful video uh, that was followed by what was extraordinary. And wouldn't it be the sort of last norm-breaking move of the night? Uh, president Trump gave Ponder a full pardon on TV. And the, the, the story highlighted... Ponder's relationship with the FBI agent who, you know, prosecuted him or, or you know, arrested him uh, and how they built a relationship, started a nonprofit together. It was very like racial reconciliation kind of story. And then Trump comes in, gives the pardon. That story was a good picture and probably the best execution of what they were trying to do on, on race uh, through the convention. Uh, Sissy Lynch Graham, uh, Billy Graham's granddaughter and Franklin Graham's daughter, gave a speech that I didn't agree with uh, pieces of it, but it was really effective and was really the first time a coherent case was made to conservative evangelicals uh, during the convention. Uh, I thought the speech should have been in prime time, you know, in the in the final hour given how how well she executed that speech. And it also was a picture of, of the kind of thing that makes what the Democrats did the week before so important, that there was a level of insulation from especially attacks that Biden was sort of generically opposed to faith or anti-faith. There was some insulation that they accomplished through the Democratic convention. Now, at times, and Sissy Graham got to it, a few other speakers d- did not do sort of the Trumpian, you know, Democrats are going to hurt the church, etc., but went to specific policy issues. And I thought that was effective and something that the Democratic Convention did not insulate uh, Biden from. Uh, they didn't do a whole lot of policy work. The, their work was more rhetorical and just setting out the idea, which I think is true, um, which is that Biden is a person who faith has been a part of his life, a respect for religious institutions and their role in America has been a part of his life. Um, but Sissy Graham and then uh, some other speakers really sort of, uh, uh, really sort of, I think, made some more incisive critiques. Uh, there were some other, Abby Johnson, who was a Planned Parenthood worker, she spoke I gave probably the most red meat abortion message with perhaps the exception of a Catholic nun who spoke on day three or day four. Uh, Nicholas Sandman from Covington Catholic uh, spoke uh, saying that the media was advancing an anti-Christian, anti-conservative, anti-Donald Trump narrative. And that was all that mattered to them. And, And then, well, before I get to the keynote, which was Melania Trump, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, first time a secretary sitting Secretary of State has spoken at a party convention. Pompeo uh, delivered a speech from Jerusalem that largely laid out his view of Trump's uh, foreign policy accomplishments with a heavy focus on Israel. And so in one night, we had Pompeo speaking from Jerusalem, Norm Broken, this presidential pardon, this use of presidential power literally in the middle of a convention. I mean, we've seen presidents take action in the context of an election that has political implications. What I don't ever remember seeing is 
a president taking action literally for the purpose of it airing during his convention. And then we can't forget President Trump oversaw a naturalization ceremony in the White House. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reported the day after that some of the immigrants that were naturalized were not told that they were going to be a part of the Republican convention. So it's a live thing. You know, Trump walks out and these folks are basically used as props for a political convention. You know, welcome to America. How uh, Melania Trump spoke and, you, you know, it, it was reported that the West Wing didn't have sign off on her remarks. That was clear. I didn't think her speech was that effective. I, I, I don't think there was a really coherent sort of political theme that emerged from it. You know, my main takeaway from day two, which was a much harder hitting night, but again, I think the least effective, harder hitting than day one, but but less effective. My main takeaway from day two was the sort of crass nature of this president and uh, his politics, but also the limits that were put on it, the limits on its effectiveness that were in place because Biden is the nominee. I mean, this was a theme throughout the whole thing. I mean, I already said the argument during the Democratic primary, one of them was, you know, Republicans, Donald Trump is going to say the worst stuff about us anyways. So we might as well, you know, go with where our heart is. And of course, people saying that like their heart was with Bernie and they wanted the, the suggestion was like, or Elizabeth Warren, or one of the other candidates, the idea was that if we weren't worrying about politics, which we shouldn't because Donald Trump's going to do what he does anyways, uh, then where people's heart is is where, like, my, you know, where, where the far left's heart is. Um, that, that uh, you know, that that's questionable. But that was argument in the Democratic primary. I mean, I, we'll see on Election Day. You know, obviously, if Trump wins then, you know, what? We'll, we'll have to look at the results and there will be a debate. And obviously, Bernie supporters, Elizabeth Warren supporters, uh, folks um, further to on the progressive side of the party will say, you know, this is because we didn't have a candidate who, you know, could mobilize the base. Uh, I think so far we're seeing Biden's doing a fine job mobilizing the base. The Biden campaign announced in August they raised $364.5 million. Now, that doesn't sound like a campaign that's failing to garner enthusiasm. I think 85% of that was, uh, or maybe even more, uh, was from digital donations. So not, you know, big dollar fundraisers. I think the average donation was $40. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to. Uh, so that wasn't the case. And, and we're, my view is we're seeing that play out in the Republican in the primary. Joe Biden is not a defunder. So Republicans are saying it's just not having the effect uh, that that it might otherwise have had. They're trying to call Biden a socialist. Even Tim Scott saying the socialist utopia. Well, Biden's not not a socialist. People know him well enough. In an odd way, it's sort of uh, the same thing that helped Trump, which is voters feeling like they have a familiarity with him. So that Democratic attacks could be rationalized by a number of voters as, you know, that's just who he is. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not coming from a bad place. This is, 
you know, he's always been someone who sought attention, et cetera, et cetera. For, for Biden, like the, the, the voter sense of familiarity that they wouldn't have had with a Buttigieg or even a Warren, they might have had with, with, with someone like Bernie, that lack of familiarity or, or the familiarity that they have with Biden, I think has helped quite a bit. Let's, um, let's, let's move to, to day three. And day three, uh, you know, I thought was less politically compelling than even day two. But upon reflection, it really seemed like day three was oriented towards older voters. Um, it was probably the heaviest night on sort of mobs, cancel culture. And by the way, cancel culture was a thing the whole convention through. And I had a bit of uh, what the Republican convention helped me understand was that for significant swaths of voters, especially, you know, Trump, Trump supporting voters, uh, cancel culture is not some something that affects elites only. Cancel culture is not about punching up like when when Trump voters see a CEO who's forced to resign for uh, you know, tweeting something uh, a decade ago, or you know, even worse cases when the, uh, you, you know, or more you know, cases where I think a lot of people would say they should be fired. When Trump voters see even those cases, they don't see like the powerful and the privileged getting what's coming to them, or you know, an advance of you know justice. What what, what many of them see is. This idea that, gosh, if they mean the left, if the left could take down a CEO, imagine what they, they'll do to me. And that's just, I didn't fully understand that until watching this convention when I saw, you know, the cancel culture line was not just coming from, you know, elected officials. It wasn't just coming from the Trump family. Uh, there were, you know, quote unquote, regular Americans who were, like that was a message they were driving, and just in my conversation with with uh, re- Republicans, I I know, um, and conservative folks, I know, and and even you know when we talk about Trump's Trump being able to appeal to blue collar independents and even Democrats, this is a major part I think of what what is attractive to them. Yeah, so that was eye-opening to me, this idea that cancel culture is not something that sort of is just sort of a cultural, symbolic thing, but actually something folks take very personally. And either either because they feel that cancel culture has affected them personally in some way, or they can imagine scenarios in which it would. And so that that was... Yeah. Um, the theme of day three, and I know I haven't covered the themes for all the night. The theme of day three was interesting. It was something like America land of heroes. So it was largely about military police, the, the founders. And so that's where a sort of cancel culture rioters sort of where all that comes up. You know, there was a lot of talk about uh, forgetting history and sort of forgetting what makes America great. Uh, the keynote of the night was was Pence, and it was the most you know most significant speech of the of the night. His speech again was oriented towards older older vo- voters, very much an appeal to sort of oddly 
an appeal to normalcy and stability, which is something Democrats have been appealing to. When Republicans appeal to it, it's this idea of uh, the normalcy and stability of sort of quote unquote traditional values and the idea that that the conflict and chaos we see is a result of a conflict. And and this came up day four, too. This was a theme of Ivanka Trump's speech and Donald Trump's speech. And this is also something really important to understand. When the case they're trying to make to their voters are is that sort of when you see political chaos, that is the result of antagonism from the left and Donald Trump standing up against it. So they would say like normalcy sans, you know, conflict is, is just not an option. Donald Trump is doing what's necessary in sort of the way he's braggadocious, the way that, you know, he, he, he has a, you know, there were some uh, admissions that Trump, you know, tweets too much during the convention. And I hear this from sort of Republicans I talk to all the time who, you know, will act like it's a big, you know, oh, gosh, I just wish Trump would stop tweeting as if that makes them like, you know, balanced and have like a objective, you know, perspective to be able to acknowledge that uh, Trump should not be tweeting. Like all that stuff is just the cost of defending what is right in the face of a left that will not accept anything but domination, will not accept anything other than total victory. You know, Pence spoke to this a bit. We'll talk about that a bit more in day four. You know, Pence to me is someone who, yes, he has um, deeper relationships with the religious right than Trump had, obviously. You know, Pence, long time, like family research council you know, guy um, speaking at all the values voter conferences, etc. He's also someone who even more than most of like the old school religious right Republicans fuses Christianity with patriotism and a notion of American values to such an extent that it seems to me like he has a hard time telling any difference between the two. So let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Oh, glory, and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and our freedom. And never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That means freedom always wins. Just in those three lines, there are multiple sort of contortions of scripture where he's replacing biblical concepts with American ones. Uh, And this is just something he does. You know, he's someone who uh, his standard line is, you know, I'm Mike Pence. I'm a Christian, uh, an American and a Republican in that order. He, He doesn't seem to make any distinction uh, between the the three, and that that was a uh, that that was something that that came through in in the speech. All right, let's uh, let's let's get to. Oh, but I, I should say, you know, I think his speech. We'll have to keep our eye on or the polling data. 
regarding older voters in particular. I think that was his aim. We'll see if it had an effect. I did think for the aim, I, I, I don't, my sense watching it was like, this is a, this is a, a, a pretty effective, effective speech. And we'll, we'll see if that turns out in the polls. All right. Day four. And of course, day four was Donald Trump's big night. But I have to tell you, in my view, it was Ivanka Trump's big night. Uh, the night opened with an invocation from Franklin Graham. And it was uh, like Cardinal Dolan. Franklin Graham gave a pretty straightforward prayer. Day four, they really brought back a theme, this theme of sort of unconventional Trump supporters, not just sort of folks of color who were supporting Trump. They had a, a former uh, they had a congressman who's flipped from Republican to Democratic, and, and he sort of tried to leverage his former status as a his status as a, as a former Democrat to um, lend validation to the idea that um, you know the left supports the mob, and uh, you know they uh, they're they're you know radical, etc. Ivanka Trump gave the most politically effective speech of the convention, I think. And part of it was she's she's a deft validator of her father in that she presents a version of her father that is close enough to reality for it to be taken seriously while reflecting like a real awareness of his weaknesses. Over the last four years, we've learned a lot. I've seen in Washington, it's easy for politicians to survive if they silence their convictions and skip the hard fights. I couldn't believe so many politicians actually prefer to complain about a problem rather than fix it. I was shocked to see people leave major challenges unsolved so they can blame the other side, campaign on the same issue in the next election. But Donald Trump did not come to Washington to win praise from the Beltway elites. Donald Trump came to Washington for one reason and one reason alone, to make America great again. My father has strong convictions. He knows what he believes and he says what he thinks. Whether you agree with him or not, you always know where he stands. I recognize that my dad's communication style is not to everyone's taste, and I know that his tweets can feel a bit unfiltered, but the results, the results speak for themselves. He is so unapologetic about his beliefs that he has caused me and countless Americans to take a hard look at our own convictions and ask ourselves, what do we stand for? What kind of America do we want to leave for our children? I am more certain than ever before we want a future where our kids can believe in American greatness. We want a society where every child can live in a safe community and go to a great school of their choice. We want a culture where differences of opinion and debate are encouraged, not canceled, where law enforcement is respected, where our country's rich diversity is celebrated, and where people of all backgrounds, races, genders, and creeds have the chance to achieve their God-given potential. This is the future my father is working to build each and every day. I just think it's, it was the most effective case for Donald Trump. 
which is not to say it matches reality, not to say it's it's logical, um, not to say that the priorities are in the right place. But it's it was the most effective sort of explanation to a voter of why they should support Donald Trump for a second term. It was it was really a disarming speech. And so I'm sitting there and thinking if, if the Republicans were if the Republicans were smart, they would just shut it down for the night because the, 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 the problem is, is that Ivanka made a presentation of who her father is directly before introducing her father <laughs> and who, who's who uh, I had doubts about whether he'd live up. And I think he gave a, a speech that largely stuck to the teleprompter uh, in the beginning, but he lacked focus. He lost focus as it went on. Uh, as expected, you know, sometimes in conventions and political conventions, you know, it's the work that happens in the first three days is the hardest hitting. And then the nominee comes to give a, a positive case, like the dirty work has been done already. I, I knew that wasn't going to be the case with this uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One, Biden's clearly out ahead of the polls. So I think they needed to in the what would be the most watched speech of the Republican convention, they needed to let loose with what they believed to be their most potent arguments in that setting. So they needed their most potent, strongest hitting negative stuff to be to come from the president. And then second, that's just who the president uh, who, who the president is. He's not going to give a sober sort of vision, positive vision of America speech. Um, and so. Uh, listen, uh, listen to this. So, and, and there, you know, this was a speech, you know, speech, speech writers were involved here. And so, um, you know, we've seen this from Trump's State of the Unions and some of this, but, but here, watch this transition. What united generations past was an unshakable confidence in America's destiny and an unbreakable faith in the American people. They knew that our country is blessed by God and has a special purpose in this world. It is that conviction that inspired the formation of our union, our westward expansion, the abolition of slavery, the passage of civil rights, the space program, and the overthrow of fascism, tyranny, and communism. This towering American spirit has prevailed over every challenge and lifted us to the summit of human endeavor. And yet, despite all of our greatness as a nation, everything we have achieved is now in danger. This is the most important election in the history of our country. Thank you. At no time before have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished 
destiny. It will decide whether we rapidly create millions of high-paying jobs or whether we crush our industries and send millions of these jobs overseas, as has foolishly been done for many decades. Your vote will decide whether we protect law-abiding Americans or whether we give free reign to violent anarchists and agitators and criminals who threaten our citizens. And this election will decide whether we will defend the American way of life or whether we will allow a radical movement to completely dismantle and destroy it. That won't happen. At the Democrat National Convention, Joe Biden and his party repeatedly assailed America as a land of racial, economic, and social injustice. So tonight, I ask you a simple question. How can the Democrat Party ask to lead our country when it spends so much time tearing down our country? In the left's backward view, they do not see America as the most free, just, and exceptional nation on Earth. Instead, they see a wicked nation that must be punished for its sins. Our opponents say that redemption for you can only come from giving power to them. This is a tired anthem spoken by every repressive movement throughout history. But in this country, we don't look to career politicians for salvation. In America, we don't turn to government to restore our souls. We put our faith in Almighty God. I mean, that that's that's it. That, that, that's, that's central to the core of his argument. I do want to read you one more uh, section. This this excerpt gets right at the heart of the cultural resentment that Trump is trying to turn the dial up on. And the ever more restrictive political decrees. Many things have a different name now, and the rules are constantly changing. The goal of cancel culture is to make decent Americans live in fear of being fired, expelled, shamed, humiliated and driven from society as we know it. The far left wants to coerce you into saying what you know to be false and scare you out of saying what you know to be true. Very sad. But on November 3rd, you can send them a very thundering message they will never forget. Thank you. Thank you very much. Joe Biden is weak. He takes his marching orders from liberal hypocrites 
who drive their cities into the ground while fleeing far from the scene of the wreckage. These same liberals want to eliminate school choice while they enroll their children in the finest private schools in the land. They want to open our borders while living in Waldorf compounds and communities in the best neighborhoods in the world. They want to defund the police while they have armed guards for themselves. This November, we must turn the page forever on this failed political class. Now, of course, right? Yeah. You should go that like these aren't conventional Republican attacks. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden uh, does not want to defund the police. Joe Biden does not want open borders. And he was a, like Joe Biden's not new to the scene. He's had all of the power and opportunity to pursue these things if he wanted to. Not only has he been clear as a presidential candidate, these aren't his positions, but there's there's just no there's just no sourcing for them. But but it's important for you, important for all of us to understand the arguments Trump is making and the kind of case he's making to the American people. Um, look, uh, here's how I summarize the case, how, how Republicans want to frame this election. Uh, and I... This is from my Substack where I did analysis every night of the convention. You could sign up for that at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Uh, but from, from, from my Substack, I, I, I sort of condensed their argument into this. They want to argue that it doesn't matter if Biden is in a radical himself. He can't stop the radicals who will be empowered if he wins. They, they, the Republicans want you to think the choice in this election is not about who will make our politics decent because decency is no longer an option. The choice is about who will be subjected to the chaos and who the person in the White House will side with in that chaos. The pandemic came in from China and the damage it has ca- caused was entirely inevitable and the damage that and the damage it has not caused is because Trump took action. The protests over racial injustice are due to Democrats promoting racial conflict, while the real racial injustices are the ones Trump has already addressed and taken care of. Democrats want to silence debate in this country, but Trump will ensure the radical left never has a say. No principle stands on its own. It all rests on Trump and the threats he will protect us from and the fears only he will keep at bay. That's that's the Republican argument. It, it's 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 what what Ivanka was putting forward when she said he is so unapologetic he is so unapologetic about his beliefs that he has caused me and countless Americans to take a hard look at our own convictions and ask ourselves what we stand for. And so I just want to close you know th- this way by saying um, like that that really is. In, in, in some ways, that that framing isn't going to be determined by the election. But because that's how they're presenting it, it, it is the choice in this election. It's the case that they're offering. And so when I say that the state of our politics reflects the state of our souls, I'm not saying that because I think the answer, it's not a, it's not a sort of partisan, politically loaded, Phrase. It's just reality, which is 
you know, Donald Trump was elected in 2016 because enough people in this country believed it was acceptable to elect him. And he will be reelected if enough people believe the way he leads is acceptable. Uh, He'll be reelected if enough Americans accept the argument that everything that has gone right is due to Trump and none of what has gone wrong is his responsibility. The American people are going to have a choice. Is, is cancel culture really a defining responsibility of the president of the United States? Is it really what should be motivating your vote for commander in chief for the leader of the free world? And like that, that, that answer won't be decided by me. <laughs> like, like the answer that this, this is, uh, it will be decided at the ballot box. And here, here's a crazy thing about a democracy, which is people are able to vote on any basis they choose. The state of our politics reflects the state of our souls. So that's that was uh, the Republican convention. Uh, when we get back, I just want to give a few campaign updates, and then we're going to talk to John Ward and hear about Biden's speech in Pittsburgh on Monday. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Well, I am very excited to have uh, on the Faith 2020 podcast my friend Ann Crossman with Homeschool Expert. Uh, Ann, how are you? I'm doing great, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I thought it was important. Um, I mean, I've known you for uh, quite some time and and you're not new to this issue, but a lot of other people uh, are, which is why I'm so glad you're you're um, sharing your your knowledge and resources. Can you just tell folks a bit about Homeschool Expert and sort of how you're responding to this this moment with with COVID nineteen and with uh, uh, folks who uh, who maybe have always wanted to or never expected mm-hmm. to look to homeschooling now have that sort of thrust upon them? <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, and what a crazy year for all of us, right? This is. Um, going down in the history books for sure, <laughs> because it's not what any of us expected when that calendar flipped over. Uh, so the bit of backstory on Homeschool Expert is that I've published three books in the past, and my publisher came to me about six years ago and said, we'd really like you to write a book on how to homeschool. And I, I said, maybe. I said, that I'd like to get my oldest through high school, into high school first, transition fully out of homeschooling, so I have a, the full perspective of what to offer families. And so last summer started writing the book thinking we'd publish in 2023. And then of course, COVID this spring, and it became clear that there were 51 million students in the United States who were being displaced essentially because of what was happening with COVID in schools. And so at that point, I took what was supposed to be a book and I turned it into a video series um, that, that's meant for parents because essentially all parents who are trying to figure out education this school year are becoming teachers in some form or another. Even if they are learning from home, bringing in their schoolwork from the public school system, they're still creating a learning environment at their kitchen table and their own kind of schedule and their own kind of accountability and goal setting and all that. And having not been trained as a teacher in the past, that's really hard for a lot of parents. So I developed this um, nine-part video series total time with all nine videos is less than a Marvel movie. And so when I was talking to one parent, she said, but I don't have time to, to watch a Marvel movie right now. And I said, yes, but if you look at the whole school year ahead of you, if someone said, I will make your whole year easier by watching Marvel movies, 
once. Will you do it? She goes, oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) So it's a very practical nuts and bolts um, look at what it takes to school at home, whether you're doing it traditional homeschool model or bringing in stuff from your private or local public school. Um, But trying to give parents real handlebars so that they can steer their kids successfully this year. Um, So yeah, we just launched the video series a couple weeks ago and it's going great. And we've got podcasts and articles and other resources at homeschoolexpert.com to help families get a sure footing quickly. Because as we said at the beginning, this is an unusual year. Yeah. And there is this, you know, as you know, I'm father to a a 21 month old, so Mm -hmm. we're not quite there yet, but there still is this sort of, I think this, this concern that I feel and, and that I know many other parents feel that that sort of this is putting our kids behind or that this is mm-hmm. lost time. And so uh, you're, you're sort of uh, getting our footing quickly. It, I, I know a lot of parents feel that, that sort of, <laughs> sure. yes, yes, that's exactly what we need. We need yeah. to figure out what the game plan is. Obviously folks should check out the, the, the videos and there's no sort of silver bullet, but just for parents who are listening, what are like the one or two key sort of questions or things that parents should be attentive to as the school year starts up um, in in this environment? Yeah. And that's a a good question that I will get to by answering your first question, which was worried about kids getting behind, because that's (laughs) the feeling that I think a lot of your listeners and, and nationwide parents are experiencing. And I have two responses I oftentimes give families with that. The first one is, Nobody's falling behind of anyone. I mean, the downside is this is a global pandemic. And if, you know, you can't even say that there's an upside, right? But the the reality of it is all families are struggling right now with their kids. So this is something everyone is facing. It's not like one country is ahead of the game and another. We're all, all suffering. And then secondly, in terms of homeschooling as a picture. So historically, it's not always been respected as an education model, largely because it was misunderstood. In the last 20 years, um, I recently just finished up some research with directors and deans from notable universities. Even from their perspective, um, homeschooled applicants are really very desirable. And so we devote a whole chapter to that. Um, Mm -hmm. I was homeschooled. I went to Stanford and Duke. Um, I became a public educator, wrote three books on education, and I'm now homeschooling my kids. So in terms of seeing that full big picture of what does it take to um, learn, to build a life with as a student and then as a parent for students, um, I've gotten to see the full experience. And so to the extent that can be reassuring for listeners to say, yeah, they're, they're not going to yeah. fall behind. They're going to be okay with some practical tools. So some of the ways then to answer your second question of what can parents be thinking about this fall? Um, I have three um, pointers that I like to give to families. The first one they want to ask me about honestly is curriculum, but that's not even one of the top three pointers just because hmm. no matter what curriculum you buy, when you open the box, there's no teacher inside, right? You, even if there's a DVD, you are still right. the teacher right. actively creating yeah. a learning environment. And so first of all, figuring out what are your child's learning preferences and then your career needs and how are you going to mesh those two? And we give mm-hmm. really specific tips in our series how to do that. But, but trying to look at those two factors and saying, okay, there's so many kinds of curriculum and schooling out there. How do I make it work with our lifestyle? Right. And the second point being, how do I create a flexible structure to help my student learn during the day that matches my work schedule as well? Right. In the beginning of COVID, lots of well-meaning articles were published, bringing bell schedules into the home, and it just didn't work. And there were a lot of frustrated parents. 
But that doesn't mean we don't need schedules. We just need a certain type of rhythm that we establish. And so like that's the second point we hit on. And then the last one is how to develop an online community so that our kids are still getting socially fed in positive ways, you know, outside of just video games. Um, so when parents are looking towards this fall, those are the three points that I always start with. That's so helpful. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is unusual for our podcast, but I thought it was really important to have you on. I just know I have a bunch of uh, listeners who are walking through these very issues, uh, and I've just come to uh, respect you and well, not you. just your work, but your presence over the years. So uh, really hope folks will check out this resource uh, if if it tends to some of the questions you're asking about as parents. And Anne, could you just remind people how, how they could um, uh, how they could check out the video series and how they could stay up on, on what you're doing? Absolutely. So if you look at homeschoolexpert.com, um, and if you sign up on the email list, we oftentimes have coupon codes going out as well because we're trying to help families and during what we realize is a difficult season. So sign up there. You'll get all the latest resources and updates. I regularly send out practical tips and helpful advice, those handlebars we were talking about a moment ago. Um, so that's the easiest way to find us. That's great. Hey, Anne, thank you so much for joining. And uh, uh, thanks for helping us uh, uh, get off on the school year on the right foot. <laughs> My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. And just want to give a, a few updates on the campaign. So there was a lot of hand-wringing. It's presidential campaign. It's really important. I, you know, I think to some extent people are, I think Democrats were jarred watching four days, hearing from a perspective that they usually, that, that many only hear filtered through news sources that are, you know, more favorable to, towards their point of view, to be honest. The Republican convention was nationalizing and communicating to the whole nation what is usually, what, what is common fare from Trump himself uh, and from talk radio and conservative media. Uh, and so I, I uh, in some ways, I think it was, you know, important. I, I also got the sense that people were watching this convention and all of a sudden it was like an alternative way of looking at things became apparent to them that that they didn't really fully have their mind wrapped around uh and so you know even watching some of the some of the cable news coverage of you know pundits from one side or the other there were several times when you know the democratic sort of person on the panel or one of the democratic people on the panel would be like you know trump can't talk about you know, this or, or, you know, the Republicans can't talk about this without mentioning that. And it was like, you know, my, my, my I'm thinking in my head. No, the that is what is your response. Like, like, of course, they're not going to mention that. Like they, their job is to talk about this. <laughs> and and it's it's exactly what, you know, Republicans are thinking when they watch a Democratic convention. Like, oh, how are you going to talk about that, but not about this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's such a there are so few occasions in which sort of in a legitimized setting like a political convention, we hear ex extended in extended shorter durations from political opponents. 
I'm from, you know, quote unquote, the either side. And, and, uh, but this, this was the conventions were, were that. And so, uh, we have four days of Trump hitting a law and order message and blaming Biden and the radical left for burning buildings in Kenosha, for instance, or what we were seeing in Portland. And so Biden went to Pittsburgh to give a speech that was largely doing what he had already done, which is say that he doesn't support violence. And that's not a, a, a legitimate form of protest. He did have some stronger language around it. And he did make some some commitments. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that with John. Um, a, a few other campaign updates before we get there. First, CNN is out with a poll. This is Wednesday night, September 2nd, out with a poll that shows uh, Biden up eight points. And so there was some concern that there would that the race was going to close after the convention. You know, I do think sometimes these things take some time to settle. So I'm not I'm not willing at this point to suggest that uh, we won't see see some closer polls uh, as the week goes on. But the, some of the first indications, both at the national level and at the state level, um, is that the Republican convention did not change the basic dynamic of this race, which is that Biden is the favorite Uh Coalition organized by my friend Adam Phillips, chaired by Fred Davey, who's a longtime sort of advisor. Well, just a bit of background. Uh, Fred Davey is someone who I worked with on presidential transition uh, for President Obama. Uh, Fred Davey is a expert on public-private partnerships, among other things. He's now a VP at Union Seminary. Uh, they're doing the uh, uh, Fred and Adam are involved in this effort that released a list of 350 uh, religious endorsers of Biden. Uh, I'm told that is now up to 500. Got some decent press. Jim Wallace uh, uh, separately publicly endorsed a presidential candidate for the first time. And I know conservatives listening to this are like, oh, big surprise, like Jim Wallace endorsing a Democrat. And like, you know, to an extent that's, you know, fair. Uh, uh, But I I do note it as indicative of the fact that, um, and this is electorally important, which is because Trump is who he is, it's allowing and creating an environment where people who tacitly supported Democrats in the past now feel like they can be vocal and unabashed about it. And it's creating an environment where people would have tacitly supported Republicans feel like they need to say publicly, no, I don't support this guy. I don't support Trump. Like this, this is the problem with having like a, a toxic nominee. Yeah. It'll, it'll make some people like really excited because of his sort of, the combative style of his politics it also turns off a lot of people and makes it makes it easier for sort of his opponents to mobilize their folks. It also makes it so the people who would generally feel like, oh, I could be quiet on on this. I, I don't need to uh, speak out too much. Uh, feel like this race is different. You got people endorsing Joe Biden who did not speak out. In 2012 or 2008 or 2004, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's notable. Um, And then the other thing I'd mention is that this week, 
Catholics for Biden is having its national launch. Uh, Catholics for Trump uh, launched several months ago. Uh, Catholics for Trump is going to be a, uh, uh, or Catholics for Biden is a, um, another sign that the Biden campaign is taking this, this seriously, uh, on, on the faith side. Then the, the last thing uh, I'll mention, I just remember one more thing, which is um, we're going to talk with John about, uh, the speech in Pittsburgh. An excerpt of that speech is already, a. A national ad. I believe they put 24 million behind it. Hopefully, I'm I'm remembering that number correctly. Um, and again, I mean, this is a thing. You know, 30 second ad. The most critical messaging point for the Biden campaign this week, uh, which is to retake the narrative over the protests over criminal justice, etc. And the 30 second ad is. Biden quoting from Pope John Paul II, who's drawing from scripture, saying, be not afraid. Again, I've just never seen anything, anything like this. So, again, just an indication that on the messaging side, like the, uh, they, they, they view faith as, is really, really important. And they, again, they understand that I think, I think they understand at least critical people over there seem to understand the Trump's only way of winning is, again, I'm going to say this for the next nine weeks. The only way Trump wins is if he's able to make religion work for him in a maxima, in a maximal way. Uh-huh. If the Biden campaign undermines that strategy, Trump does not have the ability to appeal to enough people, enough other people outside of voters motivated by faith and, and that kind of thing to, to win. Like he just can't do it. Religion has to work in a maximizing way for Trump. And it's, it's decisions like this that, that uh, from the Biden campaign that do help undermine it. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to take one more break. And then, uh, and then I'm so excited that John Ward, who's, who's a excellent journalist, uh, John is uh, going to be here to tell us, uh, about Biden's speech in, in Pittsburgh and what, what he got out of it. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. And uh, we have a quick conversation with uh, John Ward uh, to close out this episode. John is uh, the senior political correspondent for Yahoo uh, News uh, John wrote an excellent book that came out last year, Camelot's End, which is a book about the uh, the Democratic primary fight between Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter in 1980. He also has a podcast uh, called The Long Game, which I highly recommend. And I just recommend John as an individual. He's just an amazing guy and an excellent reporter. Uh, here's my conversation with John. Um, we, we talked uh, almost directly after uh, Biden's speech in Pittsburgh. John gives us a good readout of that. Here's John Ward. John Ward, great to have you back on the Faith 2020 podcast. Thanks for joining. Mike, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, you know, we were uh, we were talking and I understand your uh, writing about the speech that uh, Joe Biden gave in Pittsburgh uh, on violence and the protests that we've been seeing and the ongoing conversation about 
racial justice and policing. I'm going to ask you about what Joe Biden had to say, but of course, this comes following a week last week where Republicans for four days hammered a message related to law and order and related to this idea that that sort of at turns Biden is both too uh, weak himself to to push back against uh, violence, too radical, but and then also that he's this kind of puppet or Trojan horse for the actual sort of left wing of the party. And then, of course, Donald Trump spoke on Thursday in, in a way driving these messages home. Talk to me a bit about the Republican convention. And do you feel like like that is what sort of required Biden to step out on Monday? Sure. Yeah, I, I think probably Mike Pence put it most succinctly. He basically said verbatim that you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. Biden has tried to push back on this and say, look, we're living in Donald Trump's America right now. And so to say that what's happening on the streets of Kenosha or Portland or any other city, to say that that is somehow my responsibility um, defies the, the reality that Donald Trump is president right now. And that if he wanted things to calm down, if he wanted to uh, unite the country, he could certainly try to do that. But, you know, we'll get to sort of the rest of what Biden said about that in a moment. But what you're seeing Republicans do is take advantage of something, which is the fact that Democrats have been a little bit uncertain about how to talk about what is happening in in these cities. Um, They are caught between a couple different um, forces or currents. They really want to make sure that they do not come across as criticizing the movement for racial justice, the movement against systemic racism, whether that's in policing or, or more broadly. And I think that's one thing that they're sensitive to. And so I think that that has slowed their response because they are thinking through how criticism of um, violence, criticism of rioting or um, unrest Um, how it might be uh, perceived or interpreted by advocates for racial justice. And there have been, this kind of goes back to the whole debate that we had and are still having, but had more intensely earlier in the summer over, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cliche now, but the phrase cancel culture kind of gets to it where there was a lot of criticism in, in June after George Floyd was killed about anybody there was a lot of criticism anytime anybody kind of said that or pointed out that there was violence going on because people who are whether they were in the media or activists or politicians um they clearly felt like anybody who was pointing out violence was um discrediting the protests was trying to and here's the thing um, we don't have data on right. on how much violence there has been com- in comparison to how much peaceful prote- protest there has been. Right. All we right. have is our our kind of anecdotal sense of things, which clearly, since George Floyd's death, the majority of there has there the, we can establish two things. One is that there has been widespread protest across the country many, many nights of this summer, uh, which have been peaceful. And so the majority of it, you know, if you, if you were to take it up in the aggregate, 
um, almost certainly has been overwhelmingly peaceful. Yet there has been violence, um, and that happened, you know, after George Floyd's death. It happened in Minneapolis, and it happened in other cities, including where I live in Washington D.C. And so the lack of data kind of leaves this um, this whole debate open to uh, people who want to claim a narrative and claim it for their point of view. And, and so that's a reason why Democrats have been hesitant um, because not only do they not want to be seen as criticizing the movement for racial justice, they also realize, I think rightly that there are lots of bad actors who want to use, you know, criticism um, as sort of a cudgel um, yeah. to try to discredit the movement for racial justice or to try yeah, to right. distract from these protests. Um, you know, and, and then there's also the fact that, that Biden does have to think through how much comments criticizing these protests turn off people that he wants to vote for him. I think he's probably been a little too calculating on that personally, but it yeah, is, it yeah. is a factor that you have to consider. So all of that adds up to, um, an environment where people, I think, sense that Democrats are hesitant to speak out on this and to, you know, sort of robustly condemn it. I, I, I have been puzzled as to why Democratic leaders have not been more forceful in doing that, because in my opinion, you know, yes, you'll have some people who are irritated and pissed off on the left. But I think just from a from a more basic common sense point of view, if you were to go out <laughs> and just say, hey, look, we can't have this. It distracts from the purpose. It distracts from the point of protest. Um, you know, we can't be hurting innocent people and their businesses. Um, you know, we can't be destroying people's livelihood. Uh, and I think, again, hammering home that point that it does distract from, you know, the actual reforms that that people of good faith want to see happen. Um, you know, I think that's a form of leadership that, uh, you know, would get some blowback, but I think would be seen as, as pretty credible from a lot of people. And it has been, I think, to the Democrats, you know, um, you know, dis, dis, discredit or I guess it's to their disadvantage, certainly now um, to be hesitant. And I think they're they're as of the Republican convention and as of the events of Kenosha, um, I think they're beginning to realize that. Yeah. Now, let, let me ask you, do we have any speaking of data, do we have any data to suggest that? the Republican convention was effective on this front is, is, is Biden and we'll get to Biden's speech soon, but, but, but what was Biden stepping out on Monday to head off change in the polls, a change in sort of uh, how voters are looking at this race that they anticipated or, or is there anything beyond sort of anecdotal evidence to suggest that, that the Republicans uh, actually were making some headway? Well, Yahoo News uh, has been polling this summer in co- coordination with YouGov. Uh, we did a poll last week, which didn't find conclus- conclusive evidence to answer your question as to whether or not Republican messaging on uh, violence uh, has had an impact. We do know that you know Trump's uh, or that Biden's lead over Trump um, in the polling has shrunk from where it was in June. You know, during June and some of July, the real clear politics average of polling, which is kind of what you always want to look at when you're assessing, you know, where things stand, not at any one poll, but at the, the general uh, average. 
uh, that you know that average had Biden up by ten points at one point in June, and it yeah. was it was largely around that nine to ten point margin. But we're down to six points or so now. So there's clearly been a shaving off of Biden's lead just over the past uh, several weeks. But I also think that Biden's speech is probably the clearest um, evidence we have that there is statistical data showing that this message is resonating. Because as you know, having worked on yeah. presidential campaigns. Uh, a presidential campaign is about as well resourced to poll um, as any political campaign you'll ever see, and so they're no doubt polling every night and and t- and testing different you know lines of attack and messages. And if they're out there addressing this, it indicates that there is some uh, effectiveness to it. Yep. So let's 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 go there. Biden went to Pittsburgh on Monday, delivered uh, a speech that touched on quite a bit, especially towards the end, but was really centered on and was set up with the expectation that he was going to address sort of violence in in cities and and connected with the protests that we've seen. Uh, do you think he was effective? What, what, what did you think of the speech? And then have you heard any sort of initial response from the from the Trump campaign uh, on, on what Biden had to say? Yeah, I mean, I think that the speech was pretty effective. I think um, it it didn't have the same kind of impact it might have if he had gone to Kenosha as some wanted him to do um, and spoken, you know, from the scene there. Um, But I think it's effective if he continues to make the argument this way. I think there is a legitimate critique to be made that he's playing, um, you know, keep away a little bit too much. And that was, a f- mm. that was effective for a lot of this past year as Trump, you know, really struggled uh, to find a message as he struggled to defend his um, mistakes in uh, dealing with coronavirus, the COVID-19 um, pandemic. But clearly we're in a new phase of the campaign and the Trump campaign is on offense with this line of attack over uh, unrest in the cities. And, uh, when you see, you know, somebody like president Trump begin to start picking up steam, you know, that's, that's probably a a moment where you want to say, okay, it's time to get out there and start pushing back. You know, I think the speech today in isolation is not enough. Um, but if he makes a case like that robustly day in and day out, and they find creative ways to sort of amplify it, then I think it would have a significant impact. I mean, the basic case he makes is that, you know, it's kind of twofold. Well, threefold, I guess. First, he's condemning the violence, which he has been doing since George Floyd's death. Um, But he did it a bit more uh, unequivocally, a bit more robustly today. Um, And, you know, kind of called on the the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. And, uh, John Lewis to sort of say that, you know, um, this is not the spirit of what they did. And he used phrases like this must stop things like that, that were a little bit more declarative. Um, and then secondly, he is, you know, basically future casting, you know, he's saying, you really think that I am a closet socialist who condones, violence, you know, that's crazy. But he also talked about that was quite a line. Yeah. He also talked about what he would do if he was president, which I think he needs to do more of, you know, he said, I would bring together uh, racial justice advocates and activists uh, with, you know, police representatives, I would bring people to the table and we would talk about 
um, you know, how to solve these problems. And I would try to unite the country. You know, that's the kind of thing when Trump is out there saying Joe Biden is going to do X, Y, and Z, Joe Biden needs to go out and say, no, I'm going to do A, B, and C. Um, And then third, he's basically saying the reason why we have chaos and violence uh, in some of our cities is because of Donald Trump. He's not the solution. He's the cause. Um, And, you know, I think, again, the more he makes that case, the more he connects the dots, uh, the more he goes out and points out the obvious, which is that Trump uh, has not done really much of anything to try to unite the country, uh, which is, you know, which is something that uh, General James Mattis, you know, his former secretary of defense um, said very clearly in the days after Floyd's death. If he goes out and says that, um, you know, that'll probably have an impact. But that's, you know, that's kind of his threefold response to this. This is going to be about how strong the Biden brand is. Like, has he been in public life long enough? Is he a resilient enough sort of public figure? And is his image resilient enough to sort of take on uh, everything that the Trump campaign is and will send his way? I did find that line so striking. You know, the the look at me. Do, do I like do you really like? think about who right. I am, who I've been. Do you really think I'm a, I'm a socialist with like closet sympathies for violent looters? <laughs> you know, I, I thought um, really him almost in a way that reminded me a bit of like the run up to South Carolina, like, like really betting on the connection he has with voters in an interesting way. Um, any, any final thoughts, John? I mean, do you think this, this is what, we're going to close. Is this the next nine weeks? Is this, is this the, the, the centerpiece of the debate? Maybe not just law and order, but sort of, uh, is, is Biden able to, uh, does Biden want to, is he able to stand up to sort of left-wing radicals? Is, is that where the Trump campaign is going to close for the, the next couple of months? I think some part of that depends on what we see happening, you know, on the streets in the, in our cities. Mm, Um, and, uh, you know, there's even some chatter today about, uh, actually it's not just chatter. Uh, the, the, one of the top Democrats in the house, Jim Clyburn said on uh, Casey Hunt's show on MSNBC last night that, um, there are connections between, um, provocateurs and agitators in the protests who are not part of the black lives matter movement. And, uh, Clyburn said explicitly, uh, that the, the Trump organization, that's his term. And I I actually need to follow up with his people to see like, if he has any, uh, evidence for this statement, I've been busy doing other things today so far, but he basically said that the Trump organization to use his term, I don't know what he means by that phrase could be the campaign, could be something else, but the Trump organization, is uh, paying people to go to these protests. He gave no evidence for that. And D.C. Police Chief uh, Peter Newsom and D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser both um, rejected that. They both said they don't hmm. have any evidence of that. Um, but I think they, di- you know, they did say there does appear to be organization and coordination in the people who are coming from outside the city um, or came outside the city over the last several days to try to stir stuff up. I think we're going to see that uh, talked about a lot more in the next few days, just this issue yeah. of who are the people that are causing violence. And then the other thing I would just say is I do think Biden has, to kind of go back to something I said, Biden has been reticent to get out there a lot because they don't want to distract from 
what they see as is Trump's inability to defend his own record, um, especially with COVID. Um, Right. But I think when you have the kind of unrest that we have seen, I don't see any other real course of action for a Mm. leader of either party or of any ideology or point of view other than to get out there and try to calm the waters and to try to try to lead. Uh, And so I think that's what anybody who wants to win this election uh, needs to do is to go out and be a leader. Well, John, we'll let you go so you could call up Clyburn's office and, and, and wrestle wrestle down uh, uh, so, some more pieces. Uh, thank you again for joining, for, for laying that out so well. And uh, we'll, we'll keep reading your, your reporting uh, through the election and beyond. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Mike. All right. Glad that I could bring you that conversation. Thanks again to John for, for hopping in and providing his uh, journalistic eye to, to this election for us. Second time he's been with us. We may have to bring him on a third time before this is all over. All right. That's the episode. We're through the conventions. Uh, we're, we now have a, have a sprint towards the first debate, which is at the end of this month, at the end of September. Uh, it will be moderated by Chris Wallace. So that was announced today. So the presidential debate moderators uh, actually don't have it in front of me. But Chris Wallace is moderating the first debate. Kristen Walker uh, from MSNBC, NBC News is moderating the final debate. And I can't tell you right now who's moderating the middle two. You'll have to come back next week uh, to hear that. Uh, again, you could stay with me uh, throughout the week. On my Substack, I run with my wife, Melissa. Uh, Sign up for that at reclaiminghope.substack.com. We'd love to have you there. All right, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. Uh, Have a good week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.